And now, back to David Spada and Elliot Harris for more sports and torts on TalkZone.com. On the phone, we have a gentleman who not only played for the Penn State Nittany Lions, but also for the Baltimore Colts. He played running back and wide receiver for the Colts, Pro Football Hall of Famer, Lenny Moore. Are you as elusive, Mr. Moore, now as you were when you were playing? <laughs> no, not, <laughs> not really. <laughs> How did you end up at Penn State for college? Well, uh, I wasn't really that interested in thinking about college because, see, my brothers before me enlisted in the service. And um, as I was moving along in high school, thank God for uh, Andy Stopper, who was my high school coach. He kind of stayed after me and encouraged me to uh, go away to school. Because I figured I was going to do exactly what my brothers did. They enlisted in the service, and uh, that way it was one less mouth to feed and uh, get the allotment checks and send them home to help out at the house, you know, with that kind of thing. So it wasn't anything that from a future standpoint that I could see down the road. So... uh my thing was, uh, you know, just take it year by year. And uh, next thing you know, I was into my senior year in high school, and uh, the colleges were calling. And uh, thank God, as I said before, for Andy Stopper, who was my high school coach, said, Lenny, you got to go away to school. You need that college education. And uh, he said, and then prayerfully, he said that uh, you do well with the football team. He says, I'm not concerned about the football side. He said, because I know that uh, you're going to be all right there. And um, so I'm going to stay after you in hopes that you go away to school. Now, my the high school line coach was a guy named Bob Perigini. Bob Perigini went to Penn State, and that's where the door opened up for me to go to Penn State. So we just kept it right in line, and uh, that's where I ended up. Now, did Rip Engel recruit you personally? Definitely so. Uh, Rip Angle was my uh, college coach. And, uh, of course, with the influence of Bob Perigini there, and then, of course, my high school coach, Andy Stopper, uh, they opened up the gates at Penn State for me, and uh, that's when that happened. Because when everybody thinks of Penn State football, they think that Joe Paterno started the program there, but there was football before Joe Paterno. Oh, Joe Paterno learned from Rip Angle. You know, that I know. And then, in fact, uh, Joe had even said before his death, as they uh, were bringing him out to the forefront, was that uh, 
he learned what he uh, knew from Rip Angle. See, they were both at Brown University. Rip Angle was the head coach at Brown University. Joe Paterno was his quarterback at Brown University. Now, Joe had it all set that he was going to law school. And uh, when Rip took the Penn State job, he brought Joe with him. And that's how that happened, how Joe ended up at uh, at Penn State. And um, so Rip, sort of uh, almost like a father-son kind of relationship, just uh, kept Joe under his wing, and Joe learned a lot of the disciplines and things that uh, what Rip was about and tried to keep the same thing going after he ended up taking over the... Uh, head coaching job uh, in the 60s, you know, after uh, Rip retired. What was Penn State like in the mid-50s? That's a good question. Uh, For men of color uh, to go to Penn State was predominantly white university. There were some things that uh, were very, what's well, kind of difficult to to deal with because uh, there were certain places I couldn't go. And um, even aside from that, there was no place to get a haircut. <laughs> And uh, so we had to kind of learn our way for those of us of color in the way that, uh, well, I can't go here and I can't do this or I can't do that. So, uh, you know, a lot of our time was spent in the dormitories, I'll put it that way. (laughs) And then the Colts draft you, then you think, did you think to yourself, now I'm going to Maryland here, and Maryland's not the most open-minded uh, state in the <laughs> Union either? Tell me about it. it was, Maryland was, uh, well, like I said, we could, you know, the same thing of uh, racial issues were uh, ongoing, very difficult to deal with. When I got down here to Baltimore, it was basically for any kind of entertainment, or whatever we had, uh, and I'm talking about the uh, the black athletes. Uh, one street was Pennsylvania Avenue, and uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue was uh, just about the only street that was wide open to us that we could seek in and any entertainment, any places to eat without going through the race process. On the football team, were African-Americans uh, more comfortable? Well, you know, they, practicing uh, they, yeah, well, they kept that limited. Uh, some things we didn't know, and the things that what I did for me was to check with a lot of the older guys like the Ollie Matsons. Mm-hmm. And uh, Marion Motley, guys who were there way before me, 
and uh, Buddy Young was here at uh, in Baltimore, so I was just asking them, you know, uh, how do you deal with some of these things, especially uh, when you go out of town and uh, you can't go anywhere going out of town if your hotel was downtown and, uh, you know, you couldn't go to the movie or you couldn't go in certain stores and things like that. That was a pretty commonplace thing in most of the major cities. So uh, you just had to deal with it. You know, you were confined to the hotel primarily. Or either, if the team couldn't stay together, there were a few places that we kind of stayed on the outskirts of town so that uh, the team could at least maybe stay together without splintering the, uh, you know, the teams. So, I mean, but that was a natural thing going on all over the league. And then, uh, you know, we also knew that the numbers on certain teams uh, were going to be limited because we talked among each other as to what the situation was and how it was going and how you're dealing with it, you know, and that kind of thing. So it was a question of keep your mouth shut, who would they tell you to do, and that kind of thing, and and just be cool, you know. If, when you joined the Baltimore Colts in 56, you had what, United, right. you had United as a quarterback, yourself right. playing running back receiver, Raymond Berry. I mean, how was there enough time, balls to go around for that amount of Hall of Famers on that team? Well, you know, nobody knew anything about Hall of Fame <laughs> you great know, at that time. It was just a question of, uh, you know, whatever God-given abilities that we had and that Raymond had and that John had. And, uh, and that really encompassed the team. Because we knew, uh, regardless of, uh, what the situation was once the game was over they went their way we went our way you know i mean that's just the way it was during that time and uh so but we knew that collectively we had to be together as one and uh and play to the best of our abilities and get those abilities together uh you know there was no separation that way on the team. So uh, only other than tell the business as usual, you know. Now, you, you come in, and your first year you've been NFL Rookie of the Year. Do you mm-hmm. say to yourself, you know, this isn't so tough? No, or, never said that. Never felt it. I mean, it was something that happened. And uh, and I thank God for that because, like I said, with the atmosphere, the way it was from the separation of uh, blacks and whites, uh, you never knew what was going to be down the road. You just didn't know. So from a relaxing standpoint of saying, well, you know, everything is okay, it wasn't okay. You know, it was just a question of being careful watch yourself, 
you know, because you don't know what's going on. And we would check with the other guys of color on other teams, and they were going through the same process. And uh, it wasn't until years later you heard that uh, every team was almost given a quota system of so many black athletes on a team, but don't go over that number. Of course, we didn't know that. <laughs> you know, there's a question of uh, doing the best we can and pray that we can become a part of the team. And uh, that was primarily the way it was. I'm looking at the 56 roster at your ages. In 56, Unitas was 23, Amici was 23, you were 23 years old, and so was Raymond Berry. I mean, sure. Talk about a core. Uh. <laughs> and all young. It's not like you had a variance in age. You were all the same age. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. And um, fortunately, uh, those talents came together. I played against Amici in college when he was at uh, Wisconsin. And uh, I didn't know anything about Raymond Berry until I got here. And... Uh, I did come to find out that collectively we did grow together on the team as one. You know, that was very, very encouraging because we know we needed each other. (laughs) And we know that in order for us to move ahead, uh, you know, we had to give the best of whatever our abilities were. And, of course, uh, with me, it was a lot of praying and a lot of prayers and uh, hoping that everything was going to work out for the best. Were you familiar with Unitas from uh, college? Because he was from the Pennsylvania no, knew area. No, knew nothing about him at all. I knew nothing about any of them with the exception, like I said, I played against Amici. That's all I knew about him. But as far as their backgrounds and things of that nature, I knew nothing about them at all. And uh, so it was just something whereby we had to grow as a team together, with the exception that once the whistle blew, you know, they went their way, we went our way, you know. And that was kind of an unfortunate situation because we didn't get a chance to really know each other during those earlier years until we, uh, you know, started growing together. And uh, then with the race situation, there were some situations that uh, stores and movies and things like that kind of opened up. It wasn't segregated. Now, one of the things you're known for is... Uh, taping your shoes, and you ended up with the nickname Spence. How did that come about? <laughs> that came about when I was in college. <laughs> and uh, when I was in college, uh, Rip Angle had his team as what you would probably call, which is the Penn State team, uh, even as of now, Plain Jeans. In other words, they just had plain uniforms, plain Everything, you know, just kind of simplicity. No uh, kind of uh, dressing up. 
so to speak. Even the backfield guys couldn't wear low-cut shoes or wasn't supposed to wear low-cut shoes. Everybody was dressed the same. Even the backfield guys had high tops, just like the linemen. And uh, if you noticed around or you looked around, most of the backfield guys on other teams and whatever wore low cuts. But that was a Rip Angles uh, situation where everybody has to be the same. We want everybody the same. We want everybody to dress the same and like so. So, uh, uh, gosh, I was trying to think of the guy's name. Uh, He was a backfield guy. He had hurt his ankle. And, uh, of course, with the high with the high top shoes and stuff, he had to get his ankles, you know, really taped up. So uh, when I saw that, I said, you know what? I said, uh, I'm going to just strap myself down, you know, with these high tops. I just don't like them, you know. And, of course, they made comments, what are you doing, you know, with that tape on your shoes, you know, and whatever. I said, well, I said, it uh, makes me feel good. And as I taped it on the outside, it did make me feel good. And I just kept doing it. Now, what I did was, as they would tape the guy's ankles, there was always a little bit of tape left on the roll that they would throw in the trash can. So they couldn't get on me about using tape. It was like on the end of the roll, and I would maybe grab about a half a dozen of them and uh, tape my shoes, you know, when I went. And then, of course, that became a fixture with me, that even when I got in the pros, I did the same thing. I said, I'm not wearing low-cut shoes. I'm wearing high tops. And a lot of the backfield guys looked at me and said, man... What were you wearing them old shoes for, you know, and that kind of thing. But that's what I did. So it was just something I learned in college and uh, just kept it going. How good of a player was Johnny Unitas? Ah, excellent question. Excellent question. Fortunately for me, I had the opportunity to go to quite a few Pro Bowls where they always had the top quarterbacks there and what have you. And I was able to see, you know, some of the top quarterbacks in the league, and I was able to kind of compare Johnny U to them. And I'd look, you know, from my rookie year on up through when I was always going to the Pro Bowl, I said, man... I said, Johnny's, <laughs> Johnny's better than these guys, or at least he's as good as, if not better, than a lot of these guys, you know. And whatever, he just didn't get the publicity or have that kind of publicity until we grew as a team. You know, going into our second year in 58, we almost won, got in the playoffs. And then, of course, 58, we were world champions in 59. And the rest, the rest is history, you know, as far as Johnny U was concerned. He was a guy that whatever ability he had, he tried to even stretch that. 
to how far can can I take it or how far can I go, regardless of who's talking about the other quarterbacks on other teams or other quarterbacks of history like the autograms and all those folks and whatever. Johnny was his own man. He learned, he watched a lot of film, which is uh, the key to really knowing the game from the inside out. Not only with that, he had the great Raymond Berry with him. And both of them watched films like crazy. Nobody else on the team really watched films other than when we had our meetings. Because when practice was over, boom, everybody hits the locker room. And uh, hitting the locker room, we were on our way home. And that's the way it was. Raymond Berry came to me, and I never, ever forgot it. He said, Lenny, he says, I've been watching these films. He said, and in watching these films, he says, uh, we need more of you in our offense. I'm wondering, what in the heck is he talking about? I said, we, Eubank is our coach. He's the one that calls the shots. He's the one that got us in position and whatever. He said, you can catch. He said, uh, so why can't we use you a little bit more often as a wide receiver? And uh, we started working on pass patterns and running pass patterns. And he was telling me, you're going against J.C. Caroline with the Bears. You're going against the the great, uh, uh, oh, God, <laughs> I'm looking right dead at him. I can't call his name. Uh, with the Detroit Lions. And uh, he said, man. Night Train Lane. Night Train Lane. My God. <laughs> I'm looking right at him the whole time. And uh, he said, Night Train Lane knocks the hell out of people. He said, he's one of them guys, boy, he'll throw that forearm at you and whatever, and you got to learn to get away from him. He said, but in the meantime, he's giving himself up, Lenny. He said, there's certain patterns I got down here that we can do against a guy like Night Train who will try to knock your head off, which is going to slow you down from the standpoint of, hey, don't try to catch nothing in my area because you got a blow coming, you know, and that kind of thing. So uh, that's how I ended up being a wide receiver as long as, as well as uh, being a running back. Running back was something I always did. Also, fortunately for me, I went both ways in college. In college, I was uh, a defensive back as well as being a running back. Now, at Penn State, we didn't throw the ball that much. But uh, at least I learned how to tackle. I learned how to coverage, you know, do uh, as a defensive back would do, and uh, learned how to bring punts back and kickoffs back, 
and that kind of thing. So I was a good special teams man because I did it all the way through college. So uh, coming into the pros, putting me in other positions wasn't a handicap for me or wasn't hard for me to uh, to make the adjustment. And uh, thanks to Raymond Berry, who was the one that came up with the idea to use more of me in the uh, wide receiving position, which will also open it up for him uh, as he's the wide out on the other side of the field. So uh, that's how all of that happened. But he told me, he said, Lenny, John is not going to throw the ball to you unless you work with him. And what that meant was to stay out after practice and time up with Johnny on the on the uh, running pass patterns and timing up on his pitching and my catching to get the timing done. Said if John doesn't have confidence in you, he's not going to throw to you. He's got to have the confidence that he knows where you're going to be and how you're going to cut on certain patterns. And he said, never cut on your inside foot because you'll be kind of like out of balance. Make sure that you cut on your outside foot if you're going to make a a sideline cut. Make sure your outside foot is your plant foot. And he was so right because when I started practicing these patterns and things like that, I understood exactly what he was talking about to get the body in sync so that you would have your hands and eye coordination together. But all that came from, from Raymond. So he worked with me on running past patterns and things of that nature. And uh, so that's how I learned. And uh, the things that most pro teams use today was something that Johnny you put into practice way back in 1958 and uh, yeah. that was uh, you know they call it the the two minute drill nobody did that but Johnny you back in 1958 it was a great year because Frank Gifford wrote the book that was the greatest game ever played and even though he was on the losing end yep that's right and uh, Johnny Yu was the one that, then that, that was something we worked on just for that game because nobody did any kind of a two-minute drill. You get right up to the line of scrimmage and call the plays right up on the line. You didn't do that. You know, guys would always break out of the huddle and quarterback get up and call the plays. So we yeah. didn't huddle. That championship game sort of brought the NFL to a whole other level. Did you realize oh, at the time no what was going on? We didn't know that because uh, we knew the confusion when the game was over. Because when the game was over and, uh, you know, we were tied, like, nobody knew what to do. The referees and the officials weren't sure what to do, and they called their own huddle and trying to figure, well, what do we do now? 
or how are we going to do this? You know, and that kind of thing. And and they came over to the head coaches. Coach, what do you think? You know, this is what we're going to do, and and this is, uh, we think that uh, we need to play another quarter and try to work this out. And uh, so they got into their huddle from the standpoint of the officials and uh, figured out how they were going to work it. That whichever team scores is the team that's going to win the game. But other than that, they weren't sure exactly what to do. Whether they said, do we play a whole complete quarter or do we do this? Whichever team scores is the team that wins. The rest is history. Because what, Alan and Michi got the winning touchdown, right? Case closed. And that football is in Chicago in the Italian-American Sports Hall of Fame because Amici gave it to Gino Marchetti, who donated That's it to right. the Hall of Fame. That's right. You got it. And what, Marchetti didn't even see the winning touchdown because he was hurt. Yeah, he was. That's right. He got hurt. That's exactly right. Because they took him off the field in a stretcher. Question, Art Donovan, was he ever in shape when he was with the Colts? <laughs> Well, you know, guys that big, you know, was an unusual thing, you know, because, uh, let's see, Big Daddy was, what, 280. Donovan was like uh, 275. That was huge for defensive linemen. Most of the defensive linemen were 240, 245. Maybe 250, probably at the most. But when you had guys like Donovan and Big Daddy Lipscomb and uh, Big Roger Brown, who used to be with Detroit Lions, he was 300. You know, that, that was an unusual situation. And uh, But most of the linemen, or the defensive linemen in particular, nobody went over 275. With Gino Marchetti... They said he was the most dominant defensive end in the NFL at his time and probably to this day he's probably the best ever. Would you agree with that? Well, I would say this, that they learned from him because he was as active as any defensive end could possibly be. Jumping over people, getting around people, and uh, just lightning fast. So he developed that position that most of the guys that came in really after that learned from Gino. You know, so uh, that was it because most of the time, most of the linemen kind of took care of their own territory and uh, whatever and then released and whatever. But Gino was fast. So, you know, you had to have defense, offensive tackles to try to block Geno. Man, was uh, <laughs> that was a job and a half for them because there was nothing they could do to hold him up because he was that good, that fast, that strong, jumping, you know, and getting around you to get to the quarterback. Now, ultimately, you made it into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but it it took a while. Did, did what you wonder that? to yourself? Did you wonder what took so long to get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Who for me? Yes, sir. 
No, I never thought about it. The only thing I thought about was, gosh, what an honor when I got in. No. They said that I was up for it. Because, uh, you know, you had to wait like five years. And during my third year, they said I just missed out, and then I didn't make it the fourth year. And then I think I got in the fifth year. I think that's the way it happened. You were but meant- no, just a question of getting in, man, with such a high honor as that. Wow. You mentioned you mentioned the defensive linemen are a lot smaller back then, except for a couple. Jim Brown, though, was the sign of a lot of was the size of a lot of defensive linemen, but he had the speed. Do you agree that he was probably the best player ever? Well, when you say best player ever, that that's a heavy that's a heavy subject to say the best ever. But he's in that category. I could probably say that uh, one of the best, you know. Who else is up there besides him, in your opinion? I, You know, I don't know. I never like compared notes because uh, Jim Brown was something else. <laughs> no question about that. So, I mean, when you start mentioning good and top running backs, Jim Brown is right there, you know, with uh, whoever else, you know, that you may mention. Because, you know, rules have changed over the years and things of that nature and the way that they did things. And uh, But uh, Jim, no question is uh, up there among the tops. If you were playing now, you'd have 2,000 yards receiving with the way they can, can't touch you guys as receivers nowadays. Well, mm, I don't know. I never thought about it. Never thought about uh, that. <clears throat> the Colts retired your number 24. Right. But for people that still want to see that retired number 24 in Baltimore... All they have to do is go to Ravens games. <laughs> right? You got that you got that right. I'm right there. In fact I make it a point to go out to the practice every week. Every week I go out and, uh, just in case to be around the boys. Whatever. In case anybody wanna talk, you know, we can talk about life, life issues and that kind of thing and be who you are. You know, and know who you are, know what you are. So, are you a are you a Colt or a Raven? Definitely, I I am an ex Baltimore, not Indianapolis, Baltimore (laughs) Colt. I am a Baltimore Colt. I don't support. The Indianapolis Colts. I am a Ravens fan to the nth degree. The Ravens are my team. So when they left here, see, I was working for the Colts at the time that they left. And I was working in uh, one of the front office jobs, you know, doing public relations and things of that nature. And uh, you could hear the talk going around that uh, Ursay was thinking about the possibilities of moving the team. 
but nobody really mentioned, uh, you know, in the series. And next thing you know, boom, here come the trucks, and <laughs> everything was gone and uh, left everything. So, uh, but uh, very, very uh, unusual man, <laughs> to say the least. In his way of doing things, I guess. It made no sense to me, and I know Johnny Unitas never supported the Indianapolis Colts. Oh, no, we're not Indianapolis Colts. We are Baltimore Colt alumni. That's who we are. Definitely none of us. When they left, they left. And uh, I can't give enough kudos to the fantastic art model. What a tremendous, tremendous gentleman. Really, really, that's, I grew as I got to know them, and uh, I grew into the uh, Ravens team organization and everything because of Art Modell. He was that grand of an individual. And you could see everything he did, one for all, all for one. But fortunately for us, Carol Rosenblum was a great man also. I know when we talked to Art Donovan, he mentioned that he was betting on a teammate during a chicken-eating contest. Do you remember that contest, or did Art make up that story? (laughs) No, Donovan's got a million of them, man. (laughs) (laughs) The more you talk to him, you'll hear all kind of stories. (laughs) That's what he's about, you know. Rest his soul. He's... uh, uh, going through some troublesome times right now. He's a character, and Gino Marchetti. Uh, Gino Marchetti said he always added his restaurant for free because he knew Art would publicize it. <laughs> <laughs> now this, uh, he uh, he kept us laughing. He was uh, he was something else. He is something else. We want to thank our guest today, Pro Football Hall of Famer Lenny Moore. And the ultimate sports diva, Monica Murphy Vargas. I'm David Spade with Elliot Harris. Thanks for listening to Sports and Torts and another great show by Dave Olson producing. Thanks.